high series. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Friends of High Theory, thank you so much for talking to us and listening to us this past year. Our audience has grown way beyond what we had expected when we started on this journey. If you like what we do, please consider rating us and writing a review on the platform you use to listen to High Theory. Many thanks in advance. Welcome to High Theory. Today, I'm speaking with Erin Thompson, going to speak to us about monuments. Erin, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm a professor of art crime at John Jay College of the City University of New York. I have a PhD in ancient art history and a JD because I like school too much. And I study a lot of the intersections between art and crime. Cool. Let me ask you our first question, which is, what the heck are monuments? Monuments are bids for immortality. So if we want our society to be shaped in a particular way, we put up a monument saying, this is the way it should be. This is the way it is, is what monuments usually say. But it's really, it's about what should be. So whom should we honor in a society? What sort of actions? Whom should be in charge? Who should we worship? Who's looking out for us? Who are our enemy? These are all lessons we teach each other with public monuments. Why are they always men on horses? <laughs> because men and horses have ruled the United States, of course. Yeah, generic dude on a horse is yep. what we think of when we think of a public monument. Because, uh, and yep. it's not surprising. So the recent survey of American monuments have shown that some incredibly high percentage of them are of white men, uh, and especially of white men who owned uh, enslaved people, because this is the historical source of power in America. So when you start thinking about public monuments, you've got to think who can see themselves mirrored in the monuments, who gets inspired by them, what type of people do they tell us we should look like if we want to be honored in America? And the answer is a very, very limited set of people. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like discourses people often say about media and representation, that part of what our images of like beautiful women in beauty magazines, for example, say is that there is a really limited subset of what counts as beautiful in America. And anyone who falls outside that doesn't deserve this kind of image making, or in this case, this kind of immortalization in stone. Yeah. And not only do public monuments tell us who should be in charge, who should be honored, but they also tell us who should be following, who should be subordinate. So if you do something like look at representations of African-Americans on public monuments, first, you won't find a whole ton. But but second, you'll find them in positions of sort of cowering to accept the gift of liberty offered by Union soldiers, et cetera, et cetera, which just totally covers over the huge contributions of Black soldiers during the Civil War. There were 
plenty of people who fought for their own freedom and didn't just sort of lay there and be dressed in rags while a Union general <laughs> dropped it in their lap. But if you learn history just from our <laughs> monuments, that's what you would think. Okay. And so since you've brought up the topic of the Civil War, what well, I wonder if you might say a bit about what the relationship between monuments and war is. Monuments often try and shape the historical memory of a conflict, which is especially important in cases of civil war, where you have not just celebration of victories, but you have to reintegrate the, the losers of a civil war back into a unified nation. So if you look at the way that Black people are really just not present in civil war monuments, it becomes very clear that part of this historical reintegration of North and South was an agreement that white people should rule the country, essentially, and that we should all just sort of forget about um, the, the promise of equality offered during the civil war. And that sort of attitude is still very present today, which is why current disputes over monuments are not just academic debates about how we perceive the past, but really about how our society functions today and should change in the future. Cool. On that note of like these debates and how they might shape our future world, how do I use monuments? Well, it depends what you want to do. There are many ways to use monuments. One, okay. <laughs> in my book, I tried to look at not just debates about the character of the people represented in monuments, but what exactly those particular monuments were used to do at the moments of their creation. So I don't really care about okay. whether Robert E. Lee was a good dude or a bad dude or a good dude with bad days or whatever. Who cares? I want to know why yep. monuments to him went up so many decades after his death, so many decades after the Civil War. So, for example, in the city of Birmingham, Alabama, I looked at their Confederate monument, which went up in two parts, separated by a decade. Uh, and both of those parts went up in reaction to threatened strikes by area miners. And these were interracial okay. strikes, black and white miners uh, aligning to ask for fairer wages and working conditions. And if you look at the dedication speeches on this Confederate monument, you see there's a lot of the mine owners and managers saying, look, we put up this statue to remind you, working class white men, uh, not to go against the fight of your ancestors, the fight against the, quote, hideous specter of racial equity. It's saying don't cross racial lines, even if doing so would make your life better. And this monument is especially ridiculous because... Birmingham was founded in 1870, well after the close of the Civil War. And uh, at the, yeah. when the monument was put up, it was already around 40% Black, and it became a majority Black city in the 70s. So for the last decades, the city has been trying to get rid of a monument that it doesn't want, that says that the majority of its citizens are subhuman. And it's a monument to a past the city didn't even have. It's a monument to the Confederate dead. And no citizens of Birmingham died in the Civil War because it didn't exist then. <laughs> That's crazy. But like also so useful, right? In terms of like thinking about how something like labor politics, which we imagine to be really distinct from debates about, you know, representation in civil war monuments and should we take them down are actually really connected, right? That these monuments do things. And that is not just like simply memorialize a conflict in the moment of its action, but it like motivates like 
employs that memory to to say to lower class white men, white superiority is worth fighting for way more than fair wages. Your own life should be worse in order to uphold the white race or something like that. And, yeah. And this is something I tried to do in my book is question those assumptions. So I think of myself as a public historian in that I am talking to the public. So I kept seeing everybody saying, oh, no, 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 let's leave these monuments alone because they honor my heritage. It's not about hate. It's about heritage. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking more mm-hmm. closely. Uh, are these really such an honoring of the heritage of the lower class white Confederate soldier? And I found, no, there's... Uh, so many monuments to anonymous low-ranking soldiers, but they're all dedicated with this language about obedience to duty and self-sacrifice. It's like, thank you for being yeah. cannon fodder to protect our investments. Keep going yeah. with that. Which is like the same logic that you were just saying gets recapitulated later in the in the like to end the strike, right? Like, thank you for being poorly paid maltreated workers in order to protect our you know protect our economic structure well then on the basis of those that sort of like radical political idea tell me how will monuments save the world could we imagine a different kind of monument that might save the world you know if we want to save the world with monuments we're going to have to imagine a radically different type of monument because right now you look at public art in america and it is clawing desperately to maintain the status quo which isn't surprising right public art is a misnomer you think that implies some sort of democratic process of of deciding what we want in our public spaces. Oh, no, 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 no. The vast majority of public art today in America is put up by people wealthy enough to pay for it and powerful enough to ensure a place in public with zero discussion of what its subjects should be. So if we want monuments to save the world or our country or our communities, I think we need input from everybody as to what we want to see. I think monuments are an incredibly powerful way of of concentrating ambition of who we want to be, of, of making us better people. But if you're shaping behavior with monuments, you've got to shape it in a in a way that everybody agrees on or else you're just being manipulated by monuments and and this is what i think that you might think oh who cares about monuments uh, they don't bother me but if unless you're a person wealthy enough to pay for a monument you are being told uh to obey your betters what your place is by the public art we have today and okay so that suggests that the the function of monuments is always you like saying it's always monumental but that sounds really <laughs> stupid <laughs> but that it's always sort of much larger than the thing that it is and that it has it implies a power structure based in its sort of economic founding as well as cultural narrative of our ambitions as a people yeah which can be good or bad right i think monuments bring us outside of ourselves they unite us with each other they are our remaining civic religion. And that can be very powerful. Look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s speaking before the Lincoln Memorials or repurposing something that had been very segregated at its uh, initiation, a very white savior, but making it into a powerful source of inspiration. So I think monuments, new monuments are possible, old monuments can change, but it's not going to be easy. 
Yeah. Okay. And then thinking about that repurposing. So are there ways that we can change the existing monuments instead of tearing them down and building new ones? Are there ways we can repurpose them in the sort of interest of the collective good? Changing monuments isn't easy, which is another assumption I keep coming across. Like, oh, let's just put up a sign or let's put it in a museum as if museums are some sort of force field against racism and and everything will be just fine once objects is in there. Like take Confederate monuments. They show incredibly beautiful people doing heroic things. They're there to make you go like, oh, gee, aren't the Confederates so great? You know, isn't white supremacy awesome? Uh, and it talks to a different part of our brain than words uh, by this use of images. So you have to have a very powerful change to overcome this very powerful attraction put out by monuments. In the book, I talked to the Houston Museum of African American Culture, the CEO of the museum. So the museum is the first Black cultural institution to have rehomed a Confederate monument that was taken down. And they have done so in a very considered way because they recognize the power. The CEO says he wants to use it almost like a boomerang to hook people in with the idea of the monument that then changed the conversation into one about like how admirable it is that people resisted uh, white supremacy when this kind of thing was what they were looking at. But he, the museum is, is, is getting artists in residence to manipulate the statue. They are not shining it up. They're leaving the cobwebs on it that it came with, with from storage. They're very carefully controlling how people can see the monument. So it's this kind of thing that you have to do. You can't just put you know, a couple hundred words on a little sign and stick it outside of a monument and hope that racism will go away. Yeah, no, I love that idea that museums might be our force fields against racism. Um, where it's, yeah, to actually build something that might like accomplish something. You can't just like put it in the white box of the museum. Yeah. Another thing I like to joke about is like, what are museums America's like, strategic racism reserve? We need to store away... <laughs> All these monuments just in case the confederacy comes back one day yeah it's, it's like the strategic maple syrup reserve mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. canada has apparently yeah okay so what do you think we should do with all those confederate monuments yeah i think we need to have conversations in communities about what we want to have happened because even if okay. a monument gets removed and it's never seen again, we, to do that without a conversation about why it was up in the first place is worse than useless. Mm -hmm. It's just denying the, the history of trauma that has led to that monument. I think there are some really exciting developments like the Charlottesville, Virginia City Council just voted to approve the melting down of the statue of Robert E. Lee that was at the center of the deadly Unite the Right rally in 2017. And it's going to be made into a new public monument with a consultation of it. Uh, and that would be cool. the first permanent irrevocable removal of a Confederate monument from view ever. You got to understand that, that all of these statues that left their pedestals in the last year or so are in storage or have already been re-erected in a battleground or a graveyard or something um we are very far from okay. having made actual decisions about what should happen to them 
Okay, so it's just kind of like, let's move them out of view and wait. Yeah, and spend a lot of money on preserving and storing them that we could be spending on preserving, right. you know, sites of indigenous or black American history. But eh, no, it's more important, <laughs> right? Keep our strategic racism reserve. Yeah, that's trouble. Definitely. Let me ask you one question. All of the examples we've talked about so far have been monuments that represent individuals or maybe groups of people, right? What do you think about like monuments that are non-representational, like pillars and like how, because you were saying that the way that these sort of Confederate monuments work is they're representations of beautiful people doing heroic acts and it like pulls upon us, you know, pulls our heartstrings in a different way than the sort of logic of a narrative on a plaque in front of it. So like, what does it mean to have a monument that's like more abstract or that maybe isn't trying to do that kind of heartstring pull? I'm very suspicious of representational monuments as a whole right now, as have many people who've considered this been for more than a century now, because if you have just one person, you get kind of distracted by the details of their life, by their differences from you. It's hard to see yourself represented in monuments exactly. Um, So why not have more abstract or allegorical monuments that can inspire everybody and not exclude a lot of our population? It's not like we don't know how to do this, you know, but somehow man on a horse is still where everybody's mind turns. Oh, goddamn those horsey men. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Erin, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.